Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. This is going to be a Celtics-heavy podcast because we're going to chat with Sam Pollard, who was the director of Bill Russell Legend, the new documentary out on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, I certainly encourage you to go watch it because it's a tremendous documentary. We'll talk to Sam about a ton of stuff in the doc, but also it was really cool just to Jamie McClellan, my producer, and I, we were talking about just seeing the old footage of Bill Russell and Bob Cousy playing. So I really encourage you to Go out and watch that documentary and you'll hear from Sam. And after listening to Sam, I'm sure you're going to want to watch the documentary even more. But we do also have Celtics news. I want to get to that. And since we're at the All-Star break, I'm going to grade everybody's performance so far this season. We'll do this over the next couple of podcasts or so. So we'll get to a couple of grades today. But where we start, of course, is Joe Mazzulla. The interim tag was removed. So he's now the next head coach of the Boston Celtics. They also, in the release that they put out there, acknowledged that he replaces Ime Adoka and Joe Mazzulla got a contract extension. Now, the details, the numbers on that contract extension weren't out there, but Mazzulla extended, Ime now officially, officially, officially out, and Joe Mazzulla no longer the interim head coach. So we all knew that Ime was done, but I guess this makes it like now he is out of sight, out of mind. He's never going to coach the Boston Celtics again. Here's what Brad Stevens had to say on Joe Mazzulla. As he's shown, Joan is a very talented coach and leader. He has a unique ability to galvanize a room and around a mission. We are thankful for the work that he has done to help us to this point and excited that he's agreed to lead us in the future. I, I, I love that, that he's agreed to lead the team of the future. Where else was he going? He's, he's with the Celtics. I mean, it's not like all these teams across the league are trying to hire Joe Missoula right now. But I get it. You want to praise the coaches. You give him an extension. But there's a lot of meat to the bone here with the Missoula extension and the acknowledgement that he's now the head coach of the team. So let's start with this. I have, as you all know, if you've been listening to this podcast, I have been critical of Joe Mazzulla at times this season. Just the other night, I was upset. He didn't take a timeout at the end of overtime against the Bucks with 25 seconds left. And then when they had nothing cooking offensively after he didn't take the timeout, he didn't take a timeout again. So he had like three opportunities at the end of the game to take a timeout there, and he didn't use his timeout. And this is without Tatum, without Brown in the court, where you don't have your two best players. It would be nice if the coach drew up a play there, right? So that aggravated me the other night. But I can go through this like a bunch of examples this season. The Bulls game, the first loss of the season. The Bulls go on a 16-5 to run to start the second quarter, and the Celtics during that stretch were not getting good shots at all, and he doesn't take a timeout. Like, that is an example of, hey, our shot selection's getting really bad. Our defense, we let go of the rope. I need to call a timeout. Joe Mazzulla didn't. You go to that Lakers game, the first one in December, right, where it's 92 to 90. The Lakers then go on this big run. Eventually, they take a 106 to 93 lead. So outscored, what, 14 to 3 during that stretch. And he doesn't use the timeout there. Now, eventually, the Celtics get that game to overtime. And they go on a late run after the Lakers timeout. So the Lakers timeout actually helped the Celtics. Crazy concept, right? 
And remember, they got lucky in that game to the Celtics because that's the game where Anthony Davis missed the late free throw and then the Celtics score on the other end to send it to overtime. Tatum hits that shot over LeBron, which was an awesome moment during the season. But the point being, the Celtics never should have won that game. The Lakers did a lot of help there. And I just didn't understand why Joe Missoula, again, didn't call a timeout. Now, Missoula has also said that he doesn't think there's actual evidence that calling timeouts during runs works. Okay, so to me, it's more complicated than that, right? It's not just because the other team's on a run. It's not just like, hey, let's take a timeout because this team's playing well. No, it's during these stretches, like the two games I mentioned, the Chicago game and the Lakers game, where the process was bad, right? I mentioned the shot selection for the Celtics during those stretches was not particularly good. So that's what the timeout's about. It's to, hey, it's not like settle your team down because they can't handle it emotionally or they've completely lost it. It's like, no, hey, guys, we're getting bad shots. We're rushing shots. We're not getting back on defense, that type of stuff, just to settle the team down. So I don't like the fact that it feels like the whole timeout thing for him, it worries me a bit in the postseason when his philosophy is he doesn't think it actually works. So that's one thing that would concern me about Missoula going forward, that he actually acknowledges the fact that he doesn't believe there's any evidence to this whatsoever. And maybe to him, there isn't any evidence, but I would just say when your team's playing poorly like that, that would be the opportunity to use your timeout. The other thing that concerns me about Missoula, and I've been over this at times this season as well, the minutes, right? Jason Tatum played two games fairly recently in which he played 41 straight minutes. So meaning these are overtime games where he gets a break in the first quarter, plays the entire second quarter, plays the entire third quarter, plays the entire fourth quarter, and plays the entire overtime period. So, and if you look at these two games, one was against the Lakers and one was against the Golden State Warriors, okay? So in the game against the Warriors, he went 6 of 15. So that's what, 40% in the second half in overtime. In the game against the Lakers, he was 6 of 16. So what's that, 37.5% in the second half in overtime. So Tatum, we know he's the ultimate Iron Man, but you need to give him some time to recuperate because playing him all those minutes, you're taking away his legs. Like even Jason Tatum who since last year has played more minutes than anybody in the NBA. This guy needs a break at times, and I don't know why Joe Mazzulla would play a guy in the regular season, by the way. Like, the Celtics' ultimate goal is what? Win an NBA championship, right? You were two wins away from a championship a season ago. Why are you doing this during the regular season, right? There's no way that Tatum should be playing 41 straight minutes in any game during the regular season. Okay, so then there's Al Horford. And he's been dealing with knee swelling lately, right? Now, he did come back for that Pistons game. And I was glad that on Wednesday night, he only played 28 minutes. Now, a lot of that was dictated by the score. The Celtics were completely in control of that game for basically from start to finish, wire to wire. So I was glad to see he only played 28 because the previous three games, 31 minutes, 33 minutes, and 30 minutes. Now, the good thing is he's sitting out back-to-backs, which the Celtics did last year as well. I love that he's doing that. But here's the concern. He's playing 30.7 minutes per game. That's the most since his 17-18 season. Remember, this is the same Al Horford that if you combine the regular season and the playoffs last year, he played in 92 basketball games. He's 35 years old. So if you're Missoula, you got to step back a second here and look at the bigger picture and just acknowledge like you got to be careful with these minutes and maybe Brad Stevens and the training staff will say something to him. But the Tatum thing, I just I would like him to be a little bit more careful, careful with Tatum because that's your ticket to an NBA championship and a little bit more careful with Al Horford because we're already seeing this knee is flailing up for him. So my two biggest critiques of Missoula, the timeout usage, which appears to be a philosophy and the minutes, and this is like Tom Thibodeau Jr., the way that he's handling this thing. Okay, so that brings me back to this extension with Missoula. So I'm not convinced that he's the long-term head coach of the Celtics, right, for the next five to 10 years. It depends on how long you look at, like, the average lifespan for an NBA head coach. But if you look at it, how could anybody right now be convinced he's that guy? Now, maybe the Celtics internally are, like clearly Brad Stevens in the front office are, but here's my thing is he inherited a loaded team. Now, in fairness to Joe, he's really helped the offense. This is something I really like about Missoula. Like, I know I was critical of him, but there are some things that Joe Missoula has really added to this team that he got from Ime Adoka that Ime Adoka didn't really add to the team. So if you're looking at this, so I love the fact that there's a lot more ball movement and there's a lot more player movement, right? It's better than it was a year ago. I think that is inarguable, inarguable, and Joe Mazzulla has been the main reason for that. And if you look at it, he's really dug into the analytics, right, where 
The Celtics this season are taking 42.2 threes per game. That's second in the NBA. Last year, that number was at 37.1, which was ninth. So they're up 5.1 attempts per game. They're at 15.9 makes per game. That's second in the NBA. Last year, they were at 13.2. That was eighth in the NBA. So they're up 2.7 makes per game. So that's something that he has stressed. Take more threes. And I love that philosophy. The other thing that I love is they're getting more easy buckets in transition, right? So if you look at the transition game this year, and this makes a lot of sense, right? The Celtics are one of the most athletic teams in the NBA, especially on the wing line when you have Tatum and Brown. So the Celtics this year are at 22.1 points per game in transition. That's 11th best in the NBA. And say, that's not too impressive, Brian. Well, look where they were last year. 16.8 transition points per game. That was 27th in the NBA. So they're up 5.3 points a game, and they go from 22.1 to 16.8. And it always irked me last year, like, why aren't they running more, right? You have a super athletic team, and Ime was always leaning more towards the defensive end with Joe Mazzulla at his introductory press conference as the interim head coach, right? At Celtics Media Day, he says he wants to improve the offense, and he has. Even if you look at it in terms of an efficiency standpoint, in transition, 1.18 points per possession this year. That's fourth in the NBA. So they're running more and they're very efficient. Last year, they were 27th at 1.08. So they went from being a very inefficient transition offense to one of the best or one of the most efficient transition offenses in the entire league. And a lot of that is credit to Joe Missoula. There is an emphasis to push the ball. We've seen that. And there is also an emphasis. We saw it a lot in that game against the Pistons. Now that Marcus Smart is back, those hit ahead passes, those home run passes. We see that all the time where the Celtics are moving quickly up to court and getting easy opportunities. OK, so he's clearly helped the offense and they have the best record in the NBA. Like Joe Missoula deserves some credit for that. So I know I criticized him a bit, but he's done a lot of good things. So let's first get to. Brad's standpoint on this and ownership standpoint on this. I think what they want is stability, right? Like they dealt with that whole EMA situation. Do they really want to go through another coaching change next season? I'm sure that they're asking themselves that question, right? The star player in Tatum really likes Joe Mazzulla. He's the only carryover from the Brad Stevens coaching staff as well. So I'm sure that was a big part of the decision-making process to elevate him to the head coach, especially with Will Hardy out of the picture when he went to Utah. But I also think it sends a message that they waited to this point to give him the job where they're essentially saying, okay, we have the best record in the NBA. He's earned the job, so to speak, right? They didn't want to just initially at that press conference or right prior to the season say, "Hey, hey, he's the head coach and the players have never played for the guy before. Like he, in some sense, had to prove it to the players and get the players to believe in him. Now, So here's my big thing on this. Like I said, I think Joe Mazzola has some issues, but he's a rookie head coach. You'd expect a lot of coaches to have issues, the timeouts, et cetera, the things I went through. But I also think he's done a lot of really good things. So I don't have a problem with the Celtics saying, hey, he's the next head coach of the team. We're taking off the interim tag. Mazzola may turn out to be a really good head coach, right? I mean, there certainly is that possibility. But here's my question. How stubborn will the organization be with this decision, right? So let's say the hypothetical is this, right? You lose to the Heat and Spolstra coaches circles around Joe Mazzulla. Or, by the way, he outcoached Ime as well. And Ime wasn't particularly good in the NBA Finals either. Let's say the hypothetical is, remember how many times, I mean, sorry, not to go on a complete digression, but how many times you're going to drop against Steph Curry? I mean, come on, that was ridiculous. But anyway, let's say you lose to Philadelphia, right? Our old buddy Glenn Rivers. And it's a rotation thing, right? Like he's playing, say, Derek White's playing much better than Marcus Smart, but he keeps going to Marcus Smart at the end of games. Like maybe it's something like that rotation wise. How stubborn are you going to be? Like if the reason you lose a series is something tactical, if you blew the series because it's something tactical, would you be open to making a change, right? So from my perspective, that's the interesting thing going forward. How connected, like they gave him the extension, but I don't think this means that definitively Joe Mazzulla is the head coach of the Celtics in two years. Now, the other thing is this, just if you look at the NBA landscape, if you take a broader look, like across the league, there isn't that Sean Payton sitting out there, right? Like where we all knew Sean Payton was available. Like this is a guy that went to a Super Bowl. Like everybody wanted Sean Payton, right? Like that guy's not available in the NBA, right? So then you look at, say the East right now. So you look at the top 10 teams in the East, Joe Mazzulla, Here are the coaches, Mike Budenholzer, Glenn Rivers, J.B. Bickerstaff, Jacques Vaughn, Tom Thibodeau, Eric Spolstra, Nate McMillan, Nick Nurse, and Wes Ensel Jr. Okay, 
So if you look at that group, there isn't like outside of who? Eric Spolster, that's it, where you say, okay, this is a definitive advantage. Because even a guy like Nick Nurse, he's having issues right now in Toronto. You could tell with the front office, right? Like, Nick Nurse is a great coach. And if you're asking me who's a better coach right now, it's clearly Nick Nurse is a better coach than Joe Mazzulla. But he's having issues right there. But my point being with that list, you look through the Eastern Conference, there aren't like glaring names that stick out and say, hey, these guys are great NBA coaches right now, with the exception, as I alluded to, and Eric Spolster. And it's not like... Is Steve Kerr going to come available next offseason? Is Ty Lue, who I really like, I think he's a great tactical guy, is he going to become available next offseason? So I don't have an issue with this whatsoever. And the other thing I would say is I feel fine with it now, right? Wick wants to win a title. They probably believe that giving him this tag right now or taking off the tag and making him the head coach, it's what's in the best interest of the players where they're saying, okay, we believe in the guy. And Brad Stevens, we believe in the guy. And the other thing about Wick is he's paying the tax. He told Brad, pay the tax. So if Wick and the ownership group decides after the season, like, hey, Missoula blew us that series. We need to upgrade over Joe Missoula. I think they will. Like, I don't think this means that the Celtics can't be pliable with this decision going forward. So when I just look at the bigger picture with Joe Missoula, I don't have an issue with it whatsoever. Even if I have some issues with some of the things he does as a head coach right now, I don't have a problem with this in terms of making him the head coach because I don't believe this means that he's the coach of the Celtics definitively two years from now. I hope it works out that way. I hope they found the next great Celtics head coach. I hope that is the case. But I don't think this means that they're completely committed to him for the next five to 10 years or something crazy along those lines. Oh, by the way, I did want to get to this. He also helped you through that whole email situation where the Celtics started the season 21 and 5. And Robert Williams didn't play for the majority of the first half of the season, right? And they still got off to a really good start. So just getting back to my thing in terms of grading this team so far this season, I'll start with Joe Missoula. I'll give him a B, a solid B, because yes, you have to acknowledge he has the most talented and deepest team in the NBA. So he inherited a really good situation. But secondarily, the way that he handled the beginning of the year, the improvement of the offense, I'll give him a B. I'll dock him some points for the timeout usage and the minutes. And I'm sure we'll continue to talk about that throughout the season. All right, so that brings me to the star player and Jason Tatum grading his pre-All-Star break performance. I would give him an A. He is the best player on the best team. As cliche as that may sound, it's true. He is now a plus 399 on the season. That ranks fourth in the NBA and first among non-Nuggets. It's Jokic in front of him (laughs) and Aaron Gordon and KCP, right? Because they play so many minutes with Jokic, right? He has 1,685 points at the All-Star break. That is the most in the NBA. And you can say, well, he has played in more games than those guys. That's why he's sixth in points per game, which still is points per game are really good too, 30.6. But which, by the way, is a ridiculous number, but he's averaging more than 30 a game. And the reason I point out the fact that he has the most total points is because he played in 55 games, five more than Luka, 10 more than Embiid, nine more than Giannis, nine more than Lillard, 10 more than LeBron, right? So this is why I point out the total points. In the words of Alex Cora, he posts every day. Isn't that what we, especially Boston fans, want? A guy that wants to be out there every day and makes it a priority to be there every day? And I was already convinced that Tatum took the finals loss incredibly hard. We saw the quotes that came out prior to the season. But after how he started the season, which was like he was shot out of a cannon, And now after talking to Drew Hanlon the other day, and if you didn't hear that interview, I encourage you to go back to the pod that we had on Tuesday. How can anyone not think this guy wants to win a championship? How can anyone not think this guy's incredibly motivated to get back to the finals? So we've been looking at this all season long in terms of his impact with this team. So the Celtics right now, they're outscoring teams by 9.3 points per 100 possessions with Tatum on the floor. And you look at the other MVP candidates, right? If you look at our friends at FanDuel, they're top six MVP candidates right now in terms of odds. Embiid. So again, the Celtics with Tatum, they're outscoring opponents by 9.3 points per 100 possessions. Embiid is at plus 9.1. Giannis is at plus 6.8. Luka is at plus 3.0. Jokic is the big one. He's at 14.0. And Morant's at plus 6.7. So... The only guy better than Tatum in terms of the MVP candidates with his team on the floor is Nikola Jokic, the reigning defending two-time MVP, if you just look at the output that the team has. So Tatum is impacting winning more than anyone not named Nikola Jokic. The Cs have been, by the way, outscored by 2.2 points per 100 possessions with Tatum off the floor. So if you take the on-off differential, 
it's 11.5 points per 100 possessions better when Tatum's on the court. That's how good Tatum's been for this team. That's how impactful Tatum's been for this team. They, by the way, the Celtics, have a 121.8 offensive rating with Tatum on the court. That would rank first in the NBA. He's the engine behind a great offense. The offensive ranking drops to 110.2 with Tatum off the floor. So you're talking about, what, an 11.6 difference in terms of points per 100 possession. And that 110.2 would rank 28th in the NBA. That is Spurs-level bad. So with Tatum on the court, you go from the best offense in the NBA to playing at one of the worst levels in the NBA with him on the bench. So Missoula tweaking the system, Smart's passing, Jalen's shot-making, Rob's vertical spacing, Brogdon's drive game, Derek White playing at an insane level, especially lately, all those things have contributed to elite offense. But Jason Tatum is the main engine and the main reason this offense is elite. All those things matter. Jason Tatum matters a whole lot more than anything else. Okay, and another reason I would say he's improved this year, he solved an issue. You need to get to the free throw line more. We talked with Drew Hanlon again about this the other day. He said this is the number one thing they worked on in the offseason. So the results, he's getting to the line 8.6 times per game. That's seventh in the league. He was at 6.2 last year. So we're talking about a massive increase there, going from 6.2 to 8.6. That is huge. The other thing is the ball handling. Did you see the movie at against Detroit? It was like Chris Paul shit, who's a point guard. He went between his legs frontwards and then had a sweet crossover and had an easy opportunity at the basket because of what he created with his ball handling. And this guy's six foot nine. You do not see that very often, right? He's averaging a career high in assists. The playmaking isn't just the actual assists either. It's the off the ball movement. The secondary assists are up as well. The hockey pass, the pass that leads to the assists. He's found a way to basically use his gravity as a scorer and as a threat, as a weapon to help his teammates get open shots. So if you really pack it back or if you really peel it back, how many guys would you take over Tatum in the postseason this year? You could make an argument that he's number one, right? We as Boston fans naturally, we reference how poorly he played in the postseason in terms of the finals last year. But do we remember what he did to Kevin Durant in his 23-year-old season? He held Durant to 3 of 18 shooting last year in the postseason. Durant had 12 turnovers with Tatum as his primary defender. He was 0 of 5 on threes. He, Tatum, blocked him twice. So Tatum dominated Kevin Durant in a playoff series less than a year ago, and it feels like we all forget about that because of the fact that he played poorly in the finals. This was the most gifted scorer of his generation, and when you look at what Tatum did to him in the playoffs last year, he shut him down. So the list in terms of the guys he would take in the playoffs over Tatum, Curry, I don't think you can put Tatum over Curry right now because we saw the playoffs last year. We saw how impactful Curry is. Durant? It's tough to get last year out of your mind. Like Durant is a better player than Tatum right now, but Tatum just recently dominated him. Giannis, he has got the free throw issues. We saw how great Giannis was against the Celtics last year in the postseason, but we also saw, and I referenced this the other day, the efficiency goes way down. So you can make an argument for Tatum over Giannis. Jokic, okay, so Jokic is by far the best offensive player in the league right now. Like it's not even remotely close. The issue you have with Jokic is how about the defense in the NBA playoffs? Because we've seen at times you can take advantage of Jokic. He likes to come up to the level of a ball handler on pick and roll situations. But in the playoffs, a lot of those guys are going to go by Jokic. So Jokic is the two-time MVP, could very easily win a third one. But he does have, unlike Tatum, a glaring concern, right? Tatum does not have a glaring concern. Jokic, in totality, is a better basketball player right, right now than Jason Tatum. But Tatum does not have a weakness, you look at Luka, remember what happened against the Suns last year? Luka's a better offensive player, but remember that game against the Suns last year where they just went at him over and over and over and over again. Like, Luka can be exposed on the defensive side of the floor. Tatum is a defensive plus. Tatum is <laughs> the one of the best defensive players at the wing position in the entire league. So, you could make a real convincing argument, as I kind of just did, that Tatum would be number two on the list in terms of playoff players. Okay. I also love the fact that he's getting 8.6 rebounds per game. That just tells you that this guy on the defensive side of the floor, not going to give up on anything. He's going to get to the glass. All right. And by the way, that is second among players that don't play any minutes at center behind Luka. That's it. All the rest of the guys that are in front of Tatum with the rebounds are all centers. And the one critique you would have of Tatum is, okay, the three-point shooting. Well, the three-point shooting's not great this season, right? So now, recently, he's got a little bit hot here. He's now in the mid-30s, 35.7%, which is average in the NBA. But you do have to remember, Tatum's threes 
are more difficult than anybody else. Most come of the pull-up variety, right? So if you look at it, it's tough for Tatum to get catch-and-shoot opportunities because the defense's whole objective is to try to stop Jason Tatum. So it's very rare you see somebody kick the ball to Jason Tatum for a wide-open three, right? It just doesn't happen. That's not how the NBA works. Jason Tatum has the ball in his hands the majority of the time. But if you look at Tatum on the season now, his catch-and-shoot opportunities, he's cashed in. 99 of 234, so that's 42.1%. That's the same as Sam Hauser, who we consider to be like a flamethrower, right? It's better than Klay Thompson, Mikhail Bridges, and Steph Curry in terms of catch-and-shoot threes. So it's the difficulty of Jason Tatum's threes that sort of end up hurting him, right? Because Tatum takes so many pull-up threes. But I will mention this. One thing about Tatum and his three-point shooting. In February, he's over 40%. He's at 40.6%, which is, of course, the threshold you want to get to that 40%. It's his second best month of the year in terms of his three-point shooting. And how about this? This is going back to the Missoula conversation. It is the fewest minutes that he's played per game in a month this season is this month right now. And he's shooting his best from three-point territory or second best. I don't think it's a coincidence, right? And we've seen what he can do from his pull-up game. And we've seen in the past, he can get really hot in terms of his pull-up threes. So March through the end of last season, Jason Tatum was 43 of 98 on pull-up threes. That's 43.9%. And it feels like right now, he's had a couple of these games this month, six threes on Wednesday night, seven threes at a game earlier this month. It does feel like Tatum's about to go on a streak. Now that he gets a little bit of a break, I could see him coming out of the All-Star break. And that three-point percentage for the remainder of the season, if you take Post All-Star break until the playoffs, I believe it's going to be really close to 40%. He may even get over 40%, not in the totality of the season, but during that stretch, I could see that certainly becoming the case for Jason Tatum. So my grade on Tatum, impacted winning has gone way up. The free throws have gone way up. I'm not concerned about the three-point shooting. The defense has been tremendous. All in all, this guy right now is a top five candidate for the MVP in the NBA. I don't know how you could even give anything but an A. Even an A- minus in my mind is unacceptable for what Tatum's done. He's carrying the best team in the NBA, and they have the best record in the NBA, and right now they're on pace to be the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. All right, coming up next, we're going to chat with Sam Pollard, who is the director of the new Netflix documentary, Bill Russell Legend. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, the director of Bill Russell Legend, it is Sam Pollard. Sam, thank you so much for taking some time. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. How are you? Doing well. So first of all, congrats on the project. It's absolutely incredible. So, I mean, you had former teammates, you had former opponents, you had media personalities, you had members of Bill Russell's family. How long did it take to put this entire thing together? Uh, We started in spring 2021. So I would almost say a year and a half, long time. So I, one of the things I found interesting right off the beginning was Red Auerbach wanted Russell, as you guys outlined. So the Celtics have to trade up to get to that number two spot in the draft. And then they wanted to make sure that they could get him. So essentially, Bill Russell, they traded the ice capades for Bill Russell. Is that how the story goes? You know, that's one version. There's many versions of that story, but that's the one that's the most succinct. That's the one we went with. <laughs> you know, some people will say there was a different approach, but I think that was the one that most people understood and most people know about. Yeah, that's I mean, that's crazy to think back. I know obviously it's a different era and a different time, but one of the other interesting notes I found about early on when Bill first got to the Celtics was that he questioned whether or not he could do it or not and succeed in the NBA, which is crazy to think about considering this is the greatest winner in the history of the sport. But so Red basically told him, don't worry about anything else. Just rebound, block shots, only care about winning, essentially. That's the message that he sent? That was the message. I mean, listen, a lot of, you know, most of us, when we watch basketball, we look for people who can hit the shots, you know, hit the two-pointers, who can do the layups, who can do the three-pointers. And Bill, like anybody, wants to be able to get points. But, you know, but Red said, don't worry about points. Worry about blocking and rebounding, and that'll be a great asset to the team. And clearly it was, because... 
you saw what Bill Russell was able to do. 11 championships in 13 seasons is pretty damn phenomenal, which will never, ever be broken. So when we talk about the pioneers of the game, you had Bob Ryan, of course, in the documentary, and he essentially said that Bill Russell invented modern defense. And one of the things that I thought was cool in the footage where, and the footage is really cool to see back to the 50s and the 60s. And essentially, Bill Russell's goal was when he blocked a shot, he wanted to keep it in bounds and essentially start the fast break. And then when he rebounded the ball, Bob Cousy said in the documentary that he knew Russell was going to get every rebound. So he would just run out to get an outlet. So in a way, they almost like invented the best fast break to that point that we've seen either. That's exactly right. I mean, here's the thing that's interesting about Bill Russell. He really thought about the game from a scientific perspective. He knew just to get the rebound wasn't just to get the rebound, but then he had to position himself to know where to throw the ball, where the other player was going to be. And Bob Cousy, they obviously worked it out. You know, when Casey Jones came on the team, Sam Jones came on the team and Satch, they knew how to, to you know, position themselves so that when Bill came down to rebound, he could get the ball to one of those guys. And they would, as you just said, you know, Brian had to the fast break. And that's what made them so extraordinary. I mean, think about it. Before Russell came on the team, Cousy, you know, Bill Sharman were great players, but they weren't winning championships. They needed a big center. Now, you know, the, you know, the game has changed. The center is not like it used to be in the game. But back then, centers like Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain and later Willis Reed, you know, these centers were really important in helping a team, you know, submit, the get the ball, get down to the other end of the court and, and get the baskets. And you're right. The Celtics were a dominating team. They were dominating. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it like he thought about it mathematically. They talked about him and Casey Jones had this like mathematical equation for essentially how to play defense. But the other thing that jumped out to me is from some of the excerpts from his book, he essentially said that he looked at the game as a work of art. And the only other person I can remember talking about like sport that way is Steve Prefontaine, of course, the great distance runner. But did you find that interesting that he called it like a work of art? I think it's fascinating. I think that he really was able to sort of see as an art, as, as art. I mean, that section in the film where he's sort of comparing himself to Michelangelo and Da Vinci and stuff, he was able to figure out how to play the game in a way that wasn't just combative. It was elegant. It was beautifully done. It was beautifully executed. I mean, when he talks about Dr. You know, Dr. J going down the court doing the layup. This is, you know, you, you got to really realize that basketball is just not about brute force. It's about intellectual, you know, thinking about how do you play the game? How do you position yourself? How do you position, you know, you know, another player to get the ball to or to stop another player from getting the ball to get your, get your man the ball and get down the court? Very, very, very intellectual and very artistic the way Bill approached the game. Yeah. And one of the interesting things I also found in the documentary was the relationship with Bob Cousy, right? They talked about the on-court relationship was obviously phenomenal. Off court, there wasn't as much of a relationship. But then when Bill Russell retires, he's or excuse me, when Cousy retires, Bill Russell speaks at his retirement and said he considered him like a brother. Now, post-retirement, like a long time after, Cousy said that he wished he could have done more for Bill Russell during that time. But how did you sort of find that relationship? Because obviously Cousy was heavily featured in the documentary. Well, I think Bob said it pretty well in the film. Bob said that before, before Bill came on the team, he was the man. And then after Bill Russell came on the team, Bill Russell came in. Bill, but Bakuzi understood the importance of someone like a Bill Russell to making that team the dynasty that it would become. Now, were they really tight friends off the court? No, but I think that's got a lot to do, got a lot to do with both who Bill was and who Bob was when they weren't playing basketball. You know, I mean, it was just the, you know they, they knew how to be teammates, but they weren't really best friends. And you know, this is, sometimes that's how it works in sports. Sometimes you. You work, you're tight with someone on the, on the court, but off the court, you're not so tight, you know. And I think Bob, you know, who he was, a white guy from New York, didn't quite understand all the things that Bill was going through at the time. Yeah, certainly. And another element was the Wilt Chamberlain thing, right? I thought you guys did an outstanding job outlining just sort of that rivalry, but also bringing it full circle to the relationship that those two guys had. But so first, and... It was sort of hinted at at the documentary that, of course, Bill would go over Wilt Chamberlain's house the night before they would play. And it was suggested that maybe he was trying to soften, soften Wilt up for the game. Did you do you think that was the case? I think it was probably a combination of both. I think he truly did like Wilt Chamberlain. They truly were friends. 
But he also sort of is a way, you know, from a competitive perspective to sort of soften him up a little. Now, you know, and I know, here's Bill Russell, six feet nine, you know, here's Bill Chamberlain, seven two, probably got 30, 35 pounds on Bill Russell. Now, Bill Russell couldn't dominate the guy, but what he could do by going to dinner with him, softening him up, being his friend, figure out how to contain him when they got on the court, you know. And it was always what Red Auerbach said. It wasn't about how many points, you know, you could get against Bill Russell because, you know, I mean, Will Chamberlain, because Bill couldn't do that. But he could contain him enough so that his teammates could get the ball, get down the court, get the baskets, and win. You can tell, I mean, Bill Russell was about winning. Will Chamberlain was about Will Chamberlain. You know, he's a well, great basketball of, player. Okay. Yeah. Speaking of that, I, I found it. And you guys had actually the footage of Bill Russell talking about the contract, right? Where Will got the $100,000 contract, which, as you guys outlined in the documentary, that'd be about a million dollars nowadays. But Bill wants one extra dollar, right? I mean, does that just sort of show you the competitive nature of the guy, not just on the court, but off the court as well? Well, it does, but to me, I mean, he only asked for a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nowadays, nowadays, a player, when they felt like they were being this in terms of salary, they'd want like double the salary, you know. <laughs> I thought it was pretty generous of Bill just to ask for one dollar. Yeah, true. He could have got more out of Red at that point in, in time. Probably. <laughs> cons- yeah. Considering the championships. So after Bill Russell retires, we saw... Wilt Chamberlain come to one of the ceremonies for him. And then, of course, Bill spoke at his funeral. So do you think there was, from both guys, there was sort of an understanding about how much they meant to the game, like that rivalry in and of itself? Because, I mean, it's really Magic and Bird before Magic and Bird, where you have, I mean, those are the two main attractions in the NBA that everybody wants to see those guys go head to head. Do you think they understood how important they were for the league? I think after what they did, I don't Mm -hmm. think people, I don't think people realize at the time that Wilton Bill basically set the foundation to make the NBA a premier sport in America. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, Brian, in the 60s, it was baseball, football, and way in third was basketball. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you could probably have a coin toss between basketball and football, but baseball is way back in third now, you know, because those two guys sort of set the template of the NBA. You know, and it, what you're saying is right. You think about Wilt and Bill, you think about Magic and and Bird, you know, those are, that's the dynamics that we see in the game, evolution of the game. That's what makes the game exciting. We have this mano a mano thing between two players and their two teams. And just from like a basketball nerd's perspective, I was, I found it awesome when you're talking about that final series or Bill's final season when they play the Knicks in the playoffs. They have Bill Bradley, they have Walt Frazier, and the Knicks had beaten the Celtics five out of six times during the regular season. And Bill, essentially, who at that point is the coach as well, right, the player coach, he came out with a strategy to totally throw the Knicks off, like from game to game, right? Yeah, because he was very smart. I think, and I think probably in the back of this, you know this, and probably in the back of some of those Knicks players' minds, they, they, they knew that the Celtics were not the same team from three or four years before, but they were still feared, you know. And it was, they were able to use that fear and that domination that they had had for so many years to beat the Knicks. But then, you know, the Knicks went on the next year and they won, you know. Yeah, so the whole coaching thing is interesting, too, because so essentially, like, he didn't originally want to be the coach, right? Like, he didn't want to do both jobs. And then him and Red had a discussion about, like, five to six guys that could possibly fill in and they couldn't agree on one. So do you think Red's idea the whole time is that he wanted Bill to be the coach? I think so, because I don't think anybody, you know, Red had suggested Alex Hannum, who Bill hated. So I think that what he was doing was strategically setting it up so that Bill would eventually say, I should be the coach, because who else could, you know, coach Bill Russell by this time? Except for Red Auerbach, the only person that could coach Bill Russell was Bill Russell. I mean, the big challenge that he had to face as a player told you, as you know, I mean, back then, he didn't have assistant coaches. He was doing everything. So it had to be pretty, you know, tough on him to not only coach and also be out there playing as a center. Yeah, it's got to be crazy just thinking back to it because he's in charge of all the timeouts, too. I mean, it just feels like it's almost impossible to do, right? I mean, I guess, like, the substitution patterns back then aren't what they are now. But, I mean, just thinking about 
about that in the game, like when the momentum's swinging, he's got to think about it not from only a player's perspective, but a coach's perspective as well. It's just crazy to think about. Yeah, it's got to be intense. It was intense for him. But listen, you, as you can see in the film, by the time he got to 68, 69, emotionally, physically, he was spent. You know, he was spent. He knew that it was time to, to give up the ghost, to leave the game. And you saw that at the end of game seven, when they beat the Lakers, you know, Bill walked away from Boston. He walked away from his family and he walked away from the Celtics. Yeah. And that was something like he didn't tell anybody on the team, right? Like he just knew internally yeah. that he was going to retire. Yeah, just internally. He didn't tell anybody. I mean, you can tell. Yeah. So I'm guessing part of the reason is that is like he doesn't want the teammates to know like this could be it. Like he wants that to. He doesn't want anybody else to worry about his future, correct? Exactly. He was just, he wanted to keep the team motivated. I mean, it was about keeping the team motivated, keep, keeping them focused. Because, you know, they weren't at the top of the food chain on the, in that season. You know, they came back from where they were in fourth place, you know, to be able to, to win their conference and then to win the champ, NBA championship. You know, I mean, and Jerry West to this day, still can't phantom why they lost so many times to the Celtics. Emotionally, it's, it's still it's still very painful for him. Yeah, so so when you were talking to Jerry, Jerry West, you could tell that he's still aggravated about that, still upset about that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he, you know, he said somebody, this wasn't in the cut, but he said in the interview that after they had lost that last game to the Celtics, and he was in the garage, he was in a... In a, in a I guess he was out in the parking area somewhere. Somebody said to him, you guys choked again. And he said he was so angry he wanted to strangle the guy. (laughs) (laughs) And that team, I mean, it's Wilt Chamberlain, Elgin Baylor, and Jerry West. And you guys like outlined in the documentary, that's like the original big three in the NBA, correct? That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, and they were right. You know, They were the better team that season. They were the better team. But as you know this, Brian, it's not just about physical ability. It's about what's up here, you know, the will to win. And, and, the, and the Celtics knew they had that. They had the will to win. Yeah, no doubt about that. One of the funniest things I found from the film, one of the lighter moments was when Bill Russell, he threw the ball off like the wire, right? And then uh, John Havlicek has the steal and you have the famous call from Johnny Most and Bill Russell says, well, I told Havlicek after the game, I made him famous because if I didn't do that, he, he wouldn't have got That's the credit. Right. That's exactly right. He's absolutely right. Havlicek <laughs> stole the ball. Havlicek stole the ball. Yeah. Yeah. One of the iconic calls. So we obviously knew what a leader Russell was on the court, but also an activist. And I thought you guys did a great job of handling some of the specific events that maybe we hadn't heard as much about. And so he was living in Reading and the town honors him. And then he has the means and his family's growing. So he wants to move into a bigger home and the people in the community didn't want that to happen. So why did you feel that story specifically was so important to tell? Well, here's the thing about this way. This guy leads the Celtics to win championship after championship after championship. He's he's a five-time MVP. He's considered a man who's changed, innovated the game of basketball. You know, he's 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 that piece of the Celtics that they had was missing, which they finally got. And now he moves out to Reading Mass. You think they would want to welcome him with open arms, but now we have to remember the context. This is the mid to late fifties. This is the height of the civil rights movement. You know, racism is still rampant, not only in the South but in northern cities. And the, and and they and they have a problem with a guy moving into another house. We felt we had to dig into that stuff. We had to dig into the fact that Bill Russell had a chip on his shoulder. You know, he felt like as a black man, he was he was being you know he was being denigrated, and he felt he felt it very strongly. So we felt it was important to talk about his activities, going to the march in Washington, going to Jackson, Mississippi, but the, but the hostility and the racism he also faced on a day to day basis. I mean, think of it this way. Even when he became the star of the Celtics, really, the fans still saw Bob Cousy as the as the man. You know, I mean, this this had to stick in Bill's craw in his throat. You know, all he's done to make this team, with, with, you know, with his teammates, 
Tommy Heinsohn and Sam Sanders and all the other play Casey and Sam. But he's the real linchpin to the Celtics winning, you know, championship after championship. And he gets no respect. Well, yeah, you guys even mentioned, too, like, that there were legitimate questions about, hey, can they win without Kuzi? And Bill Russell said, hey, why don't you go look in the Globe? Why don't you ask the Globe who won the last three MVPs, right? Exactly. They could win without Kuzi, and they did. Yeah. You saw. <laughs> they won. They were winning, you know. It- and they kept winning. So how would you describe his relationship with Muhammad Ali? Because in the documentary, essentially, he wants to understand where Muhammad Ali is coming from with his decision to protest the Vietnam War, correct? Yes, he did. But I think he was very courageous. I think when you think about the 67 summit and the fact that Jim Brown, Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and all the other players, you know, African-American sports figures who came to Cleveland, to listen to Ali, they wanted to understand what he was coming from, where he was coming from, the sacrifice that he would make, you know, to not want to serve in the armed forces. That was pretty amazing. And Bill says, you know, as Harry Edwards says, he says, I wish I could have done that, you know. So that was a big thing. So he had a tremendous amount of respect for Ali and Ali's particular stand, you know. And it's, it's you know, it shows the kind of man he was. You know, he was a man who understood about people fighting for their rights, and he was going to support people fighting for their rights, particularly black people. Yeah, and then with the current players that you have, I mean, you have Jason Tatum and some former players, but didn't play in, um, obviously, Russell's era, like the Shaquille O'Neal's of the world said that guy centers at least should donate part of their contract to Bill Russell during the documentary. Steph Curry's on there. Chris Paul's on there. So what did you make of, like, all these former players wanting to talk about Bill Russell, it seems like those guys were, I mean, I can't imagine anybody said no to you, did they? No one said no. I mean, everyone we went out, reached out to said yes. We did reach out to Michael Jordan and LeBron, but we never really got a response from them. But everyone else, when they when we heard from them, they said yes. It was one of the last interviews I did was with Oscar Robinson. And that was really a pleasure to fly down to Orlando to interview the big O, you know. So all these people understand that Bill Russell, you know, they stand on his shoulders. They stand on the shoulders of Bill Russell. They stand on the shoulders of Will Chamberlain, you know, and they have undying respect for this man. And Sam, so you have his daughter, of course, in the documentary. You have his widow as well. What's yeah. the feedback that you've got back from then? I have to imagine they're very pleased with how this came out. Well, we haven't, I haven't heard from, from his daughter, but I heard through some other people that she's really enjoyed what she's been seeing, that she's been twittering. Uh, Janine, his widow, was at our screening uh, a week and a half, a week ago in New York City, and she was at the screening we had the week, the, the Friday before that. So she's obviously, I mean, if she was unhappy, she would let us know, <laughs> but she seems to be fine. <laughs> All right. So obviously, like you go into this, you have a lot of the background information and an idea of the story that you want to tell. But was there something that jumped out to you? Was there an element that surprised you or something that you came across and you said, wow, this is like something I didn't really know about? Like, what was the thing that you found out during this process that you enjoyed the most? Well, I don't know if I used the word enjoy, but I was surprised that Bill Russell fell out with Bill Chamberlain and they stopped talking for so many years. And that Bill Russell didn't seem to have a problem not talking. <laughs> when he's on that interview show with Jane Kennedy, he doesn't seem to have an issue with the fact that maybe they'll never talk again. But obviously, they did make up. So it surprised me that he was so upset with Wilt coming out of Game 7. That was, that was the biggest surprise for me. Yeah, it was prof- that was fascinating. That was one of my favorite parts of the whole documentary is just the Russell-Wilt rivalry, right? Because I think you guys do a great job of Obviously, the main story is about Bill Russell, but you also like tell a history sort of of the Celtics organization during that entire time as well. And you get an opportunity to see how different these two men were. You know, here's Bill Russell, you know, the working man center who who had to knew how to do what he needed to do to help the team win. Then you compare him with Will Chamberlain, who went from team to team to team. It was always about, except for a few exceptions, it was always about Will Chamberlain. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't, you know, he was a great player, but did he have the same number of rings on his finger, fingers that Bill Russell had? No. It's pretty amazing. The other thing, too, is interesting. Bill Russell's approached by the Harlem Globetrotters, and he refuses to play for them. You know, Will Chamberlain, a couple of years later, is approached by the Harlem Globetrotters, 
As soon as they offer him $100,000, he plays. <laughs> well, and that, Sam, before we let you go, does that come back to his father, right? Because he mentions in the documentary that he inherited his self-worth from his father. And I thought you guys did an outstanding job of highlighting that. That's something that I didn't really know, like the relationship that he had with his father, of course. And that was obviously a very important part of the documentary and obviously a very important part of who Bill Russell was. Well, that sort of set the standard in terms of how he saw himself as a black man in America, you know. And he saw his father and his grandfather as very strong role models. And he wanted to live up to those role models. And that's why he did what he did, because his father said his son would not be playing for the Harlem Globetrotters. Yeah. Sam, I really appreciate you stopping by. That is Sam Pollard. He is the director of Bill Russell Legend. Sam, it's a great documentary. I encourage everybody listening to go out and watch it as well. Sam, congratulations so much on the project. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for stopping by. My pleasure, Brian. Take care of yourself. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Sam Pollard. Really enjoyed that and really enjoyed the documentary as well. All right. It's time now for our email box, and you can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com, and that's where we bring in Jamie McClellan, the producer of Off the Pike. You actually hooked up the Sam Pollard interview, Jamie, so, I mean, you enjoyed the documentary too, man. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. I thought I knew a lot about Bill Russell, but evidently not. I mean, there's so much packed in there. It's such a long career and long impact just on the country. How about Bob Cousy in that documentary, just dribbling around with the right hand, man? That dude was flying. He still looks pretty good. I think he's like 90 or something. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I did really enjoy that because seeing all the footage like of all the old games, I thought the Wilt Russell thing, that was probably my favorite thing of the whole documentary, just like sort of the rivalry that turned into a relationship. So that that was a cool part of it as well. And then you, I, 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 I talked to Sam about this. He wanted one extra dollar than what Wilt Chamberlain got in his contract. That was hilarious. Yeah, I love that part. All right, so let's hit the off the pike at gmail.com mailbag. Who's up first, Jamie? We got Greg in Atlanta. He writes, hello, Brian. First off, thanks for getting Sean McDonough on the pod to talk about his career and great sports moments. I'm curious about your thoughts looking back on the Cam Newton tenure on the Pats. It looks like Cam was incapable of getting the ball to receivers, but after this past season, Mac Jones had similar games where he looked just as flaccid with his pass attempts. Uh, do you think Cam and maybe now Mac and Matty P Got too long a shit stick for scoring woes in the post-Brady era. Shouldn't it be on the Hall of Fame coach and GM's fault? Nick Folk remains the team's most dynamic scorer. Uh, thanks for your coverage and love to hear your thoughts. Okay, so first off, um, McDonough was awesome. I love chatting with Sean. He had a lot of great stories. He's a great guy as well, and he's called a lot of big games. So that was a ton of fun. Um, I do like using the word flaccid. I think that's pretty <laughs> funny. It's a good use of that word. But in terms of the whole Cam Newton thing, this is what I'll say in terms of the criticism that was levied at Mac and Matt Patricia compared to the criticism that was levied at Cam Newton. And I outlined this on one of the pods earlier this season, Jamie, where the number is very similar, similar Mac and Cam Newton. But here's the difference. Cam Newton's offensive coordinator was Josh McDaniels. Josh McDaniels is this thing called a real professional offensive coordinator, right? Unlike Matt Patricia, who had no experience calling plays whatsoever on the offensive side of the football. So that brings me to the other component to this is, well, who do you blame, right? So Cam, I look at Cam's season as way worse than Max because Mac was dealing with a situation where the coaching staff was really bad. And with Cam, you could tell physically he just didn't have it anymore. And I felt bad for the guy. Remember, they took him out to throw a Hail Mary. I mean, the guy did not have the arm strength to throw the ball down the field anymore, right? Like, so, so he wasn't that guy anymore. And I felt bad for Cam. He said all the right things in his press conferences. Everybody loved him as a teammate. I legitimately felt bad for him because you were seeing before your eyes a guy that just couldn't play football anymore. It was unfortunate that it got to that situation, but that's where they were at. But anyway, this is a long way of getting back to my original point is I agree with you. It's on Bill. Bill made the decision to go with Josh McDaniels or excuse me, to go with Matt Patricia to replace Josh McDaniels. Ultimately, it's Bill's decision to go with those guys. So when I look at it, Jamie, I totally agree. I put way more of this on Bill than I do Matt Patricia. Matt Patricia wasn't qualified for the damn job. It's like if you are in a playoff game in Major League Baseball and you go to a reliever that has like blown forward of his last six saves. That's on the manager. That's not on the player. The player has lost it. So that's where I look at it. I just feel like Matt Patricia was out of place. Yeah. I mean, it's not on him to say, oh, Bill, I can't do the job. It's yeah. on Bill. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny, though, if he did say that? Like, <laughs> Hey, Bill. Yeah, we're eight weeks into this thing. I fucking suck. Okay, get me out of here. All right, who's up next? 
we got this from David. David writes, hi, Brian. Everyone is so down on the Sox this year, and rightfully so. I don't think expectations have been this low since 1997, the bridge year between Clemens and Pedro. Sure, they've had bad teams since then, but expectations are always much higher, and the poor performances were surprising. That 97 team had Nomar, Mo, John Valentin, Troy O'Leary, Wakefield. Uh, seems much better than this squad. I guess we're lucky that it's been 26 years of high expectations, but I'm really bummed about this team. What do you think? All right, so a couple of things. First of all, I would say we had low expectations in 2020. I get it was a COVID year, but you had just traded away Mookie Betts. We knew that Chris Sale was not going to pitch the entirety of those two months, whatever it was. Eduardo Rodriguez ended up in a situation where he got myocarditis from COVID, so he couldn't pitch the entire season. David Price, who in 2019, like, and I know people hate to say this, he was your best pitcher in 2019, right, in terms of the rotation. Sale was bad in 19 before we found out the reason was he was hurt. But the point being is you had basically the starting rotation was a mess at that particular point in time. As we alluded to, Mookie Betts was not part of the equation. And if you remember back to 2020, this is like a real thing. J.D. Martinez was fucking pissed about the video situation where you couldn't watch video in the clubhouse because we were in a COVID time and they didn't want guys like huddled up. And J.D. Martinez is like a robot, right? Because he wants to look at all this video and diagnose his swing in between at bats. And that like J.D. was talking about this before the season started. I'm like, this has got to be a real thing for J.D. And he he played really poorly that year. And then we found out in 2021, he's actually right. It was because of the video. And really, I mean, if you look back at it, it's two bad months more so than anything else. And Benintendi barely played that year. But even going into 2020, we knew it wasn't going to be good. So in terms of the expectations, I feel like that's the lowest it's been. Like that year, it's lower than it was this year. And we're all mad because of the Mookie situation. But I'm not as down on this team as everybody else is. Like, I I understand there is a ton of what ifs, like a ton of question marks with this team. Can Sale stay healthy? What is Paxton going to be coming back from his injury? Like, you can go up and down the whole rotation, really, and there's question marks, right? Is Whitlock going to be good as a starter? Now, I tend to think he's going to be. How's Bayo going to do in his first real full season at the major league level? Now, I think he's going to be really good. We'll see. Corey Kluber, more of an innings eater. I do like the fact that they actually have real proven commodities in the bullpen when we're talking about Jansen, although the pitch clock does concern you a little bit because he's one of the slowest workers in Major League Baseball. And Chris Martin, best strike thrower out of the bullpen in Major League Baseball. So you like that. And I actually think the lineup is going to be decent. I, I and, and decent's probably the wrong, wrong word. I think the lineup's going to be better than most people think. If you look at Yoshida at the top, great bat-to-ball guy. Rafael Devers got his contract extension. I believe that Turner's an upgrade over J.D. Martinez because he doesn't strike out and he'll actually take some walks, two things that J.D. really didn't do last year. Verdugo came back into camp in better shape, which is a huge thing. It's a massive season for Verdugo, who's going into his 27-year-old season, only one year left of arbitration. Heck, Jamie, when we had Cora on this podcast, he said it. Like, Alex has got to be better. He legitimately said that, and he's happy with the way that he showed up. And then you have some power when you add a guy like Duvall. So I think the problem for the Red Sox will be the division, right? You're talking about the Yankees, although now they're dealing with an injury to Montas, although Montas sucked in the Bronx last year. We know that Toronto is a fucking bear. That team's going to be completely loaded once again, and Tampa's Tampa. So I think the biggest issue the Red Sox run into is the division, but I actually feel a lot better about this team than I did, say, two months ago. Like I actually like some of the additions that they made to the team. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, they got a lot of question marks, but they might uh, they might work out, like Yoshida and Cassis. Yeah, Cassis is another good name to bring up, because Cassis last year, I mean... If you just take the percentage, he was on pace to hit close to 30 home, actually more than 30 home runs last year, right? So that's, that to me, that's a good point, Jamie. I feel like that may be the most important player for this team this year. Like, because I look at it and I say, like, Devers is a given. We know Devers is going to be good, right? We know that Justin Turner is going to hit for a pretty good average and get on base, right? Like, there's a lot of givens with this lineup. We know that Adam Duvall, as long as he stays healthy, he's going to hit home runs. But with Cassis, this guy... When he made his debut, the only guy that walked more than him in terms of a percentage was Aaron Judge. And we know that he's got legitimate bona fide power. And if he's a guy that can hit 30 home runs this year, well, that brings a new component to the lineup where now you have three guys that could get to that 30 home run threshold. And let's be real. The Red Sox didn't hit home runs last year. The Boston Red Sox were 20th in baseball in home runs. Think about that. The Boston Red Sox, who play at Fenway Park, were 20th in home runs. So Cass is huge season for him and huge for the future of the organization as well, because you're hoping he's a pillar there at first base. 
All right, Jamie, good stuff as always, man. Enjoyed it. We'll get you another offthepike at gmail.com mailbox coming soon. Those are good, though. I like that. A little mix, a little Patriots, little Red Sox. I know, a little bit of everything. Yeah, I'm getting fired up for the Red Sox now. Hey, look, it, maybe it's just me. Like I just I love, like your optimism. It's getting yeah. me excited. I just love baseball, so I got to find something to believe in, right? I do. And I do feel like, and I, I've said this on multiple pods, I feel like Sale's going to have a good season. I may look like an idiot like three weeks into the season, <laughs> but I feel like, and have you heard some of the quotes coming out of there from Chris Sale? He feels healthy, no rehab, he's normal again. His ribs feel um, good. Yeah, All right. I'm, yeah, just wait. We'll give it like three weeks and then everybody's <laughs> going to be like sending emails like you're an idiot. You're Why would you ever think sales going to stay healthy? But hey, knock on wood. As always, you can get your voicemails in at 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. So even though we're still doing the emails at offthepike at gmail.com, we will take the calls as we usually do as well. All right. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast. And we'll chat with you guys on Sunday.